Hello, welcome to Farmgate. I'm Finlow Kostain. Today I'm delving into the origins of regenerative agriculture. What is this knowledge? Where does it come from? Can anyone claim ownership over regenerative principles? And how can we ensure that the phrase regenerative agriculture isn't just hijacked and used to greenwash business as usual? Reginaldo Haslid Marachin is the president of the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance. Originally from Guatemala, Regi lives in Minnesota, USA where he trains farmers in the production of regenerative poultry. His book, In the Shadow of the Green Man, weaves together stories from his upbringing in revolution-torn Guatemala with his vision for regenerative farming. Hello, Reki. Hi, nice uh, being here with you and thanks for this opportunity. Now, you've said that regenerative agriculture is about being indigenous to the earth. What does that mean? It's actually a very simple equation to understand. Um, we are actually born indigenous to the earth. It wasn't that long ago when we were being born completely naked out in the bush somewhere. And that's not very long, in fact, in geological time, 50,000 years, maybe 40,000 years, but that's not even a blink of an eye. Now, we just have disconnected ourselves from that original being. We are born out of the elements of the earth. We came to be in the womb of our mothers from the elements of the earth, from what our mothers uh, ate, from the food that came from the earth. And so being indigenous simply means recognizing our belonging to not only the, the earth and its elements and how we are formed, shaped, and how we have evolved over time, over evolutionary time, geoevolutionary time, and then understanding that we are simply one of the many multiple levels and incredible diversity of living systems on earth. We are simply one of them. And so as one of them, we are not outside of nature, but rather we are nature. And when we think of ourselves from that perspective, then this idea that we have that we are the kings of the hill and that we can exploit everything else to our advantage and actually at the end of the day to our own demise that whole mentality which we call colonizing mentality and the colonization of everything sort of kind of starts fading away and we reclaim more of that ancestral way of thinking and being. It seems to me that people in rich nations around the world, we tend to think of indigenous as being something that happens over there. It's something that happens in lower or middle income countries. And from what you're saying, it's almost as though we can all be indigenous. We are indigenous. That being indigenous is about what we do rather than what we are. It's a way of being. You can be indigenous or not. And most people have chosen not to be indigenous, not to relate to the other living systems in the way we are designed. And every time we do that, we separate ourselves from our own capacity to naturally regenerate. And that's why the concept of regenerative, it really isn't something that just came about in the last, what, five years, 10 years since corporations and nonprofits and think tanks started to appropriate it from the ancestral ways of being. So yeah, you can be regenerative, you can be indigenous, but nobody owns that, nobody controls that. You can't define that, you can only be it. Okay, so you're saying there that, you know, regenerative agriculture, that an indigenous approach has been appropriated by NGOs and by companies, essentially by white people in these high-income countries. And I'm just wondering, what do you mean by that? How is that appropriation taking place? Oh, it's the same way as we have done it for like, you know, Sherry Mitchell in her book, you know, Sacred Instructions points out 
the origins of this way of colonization that has taken over the world started in her anthropological studies at around 3,000 years ago with the commoditation of women. That's how she lays it out. Now, we can agree or disagree on, on, on those specific things, but the bottom line is that from then we started this very methodical, disciplined way of building governance, ownership, control of resources and infrastructure and ways of being, of communicating, of shaping populations for the purpose of a single purpose, to extract as much value as possible out of everything that is below you. So if you got some money, you go out there and you try to extract more money from others on the basis of your money. If you got land, then you go and try to extract the most out of that land on the basis of the fact that you have land. If you had slaves, then then in the South, in the United States, you would go in and because you had slaves, you could extract more value out of both the slaves and the land and the market. So in the market, we tried to sell to them at the highest bidder. And on the other side, we tried to produce at, at the lowest potential depressed point of cost, right? That mentality really is what got us to where we are today. And that is now the way we are approaching most of these new spaces that we're encountering. And so, yes, it just happens that most of the colonizing infrastructure is, to a great extent, almost invisible. The, the remaining part that is controlled by other folks, uh, most of it is controlled by white males. And so... Yes, it is a white male phenomena across the world that we are now appropriating these ways of thinking. Christopher Columbus did the same thing. He came over and, quote, unquote, found these new territories. Okay, so this is what happening today. This this just white-dominated global society of nonprofits and corporations and so on have now come into contact with this new, very fascinating ancestral way of thinking called indigenous. And so they figured... Okay, well, the natives here in the United States call their territory something else too. But the colonizers said, no, 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 that's not good enough. We're going to call it America or whatever, right? And so the same thing. Oh, we're going to call this other space regenerative. And so now comes the regenerative term. And now, now you start putting everything you normally have done within that. And then you start defining it so that it fits what you do rather than becoming what it was supposed to be. And so this is the process. And this is repeating again and again and again. You're describing a revolution almost. That regenerative agriculture This is a, is a quiet revolution pulling down this sort of, you know, white male driven extractive model that's grown up over the last 300 years to create something which is building on ancestral knowledge so that we start regenerating the natural cycles and natural systems around us. Exactly. I mean, you either regenerate or you don't. Whether you name it regenerative, whether you set up five claims that you say, okay, this is why we are regenerative or not, that is totally irrelevant. Whether you have a brand that says regenerative, that's not nothing to do with it. And the other thing that, that a lot of these colonizers in this space are, are missing is the fact that you, you really can't have regenerative products because, you know, even our chickens, okay, we, we have this regenerative poultry system, but the chicken itself is not regenerative. What is regenerative is the system. And that is being missed across the board. I mean, we have now reduced the, the concept of regenerative soil to practices on the land, to soil health, to, you know, minute 
reductionist ways of thinking, which is blatantly a colonizing mentality right there. Well, let's get into that in just a little while. But before we do, I just want to go back into, into your own history. You grew up in Guatemala during the revolution that claimed over 200,000 lives. And I wonder <laughs> how this upbringing affected your relationship with the earth and with agriculture. Were you one of a kind or was the way that you farmed something which was quite standard in the place that you grew up? Well, we were not one of a kind as on a regional ecosystem basis in northern Guatemala where I grew up. But we were definitely, we definitely stuck out. I am happy to say that I was part of a very intelligent uh, group of adults and uh, mentors that saw the problem we had of lack of food and, you know, literally misery. I mean, we lived between, I always say, we were not even poor. We were between poverty and and absolutely nothing. And um, within that context, one of the things that happens in your brain, and this is true anywhere else where you live in crisis, is that you actually start to relate closely to the actual reality of things. You don't live in this privileged world where everything works because guess what? You know, it doesn't matter what you do. You are not going to die. You're not going to go hungry for a week if you make a mistake. And so within those conditions, if you if you actually use what we call innate intelligence and on the basis of that innate intelligence, you cultivate the indigenous intellect, indigenous intellect and innate intelligence having nothing to do with universities and PhDs and none of that stuff, by the way. This is the stuff we are born with. And so when we use that, and that is what happened in in my childhood, is that I was exposed to adults who were thinking deeply about the reality, responsible individuals who saw no extraction, who saw no profit. They saw a way to ensure our survival, and they knew that the food was the most important thing. I went all the way through sixth, seventh grade uh, barefoot. We didn't have enough money to buy clothes, so we, my mother made made our shirts, and we, you know, the buttons sometimes were all crooked, and with shorts, it was it was warm, uh, tropical clim- climate, so we could we didn't need full pants. That's how we went around, you know, our our long pants were full of patches, not because of style, but because that's the only way we could afford, right? So I am talking about real stuff, real poverty, but also real intellect. And we were able to cultivate that. And when we started to identify with that native intelligence and we started to cultivate the indigenous intellect, we stopped slashing, we stopped burning the forest, and we started seeing the whole ecosystem for what it was. And that's when we started to get out of poverty, hunger, and malnutrition. And we built literally a whole new ecosystem and a whole new economy for our family and for quite a few other neighbors who were willing to follow and join in. And so, yeah, that's that's how it came about, this way of thinking. And in that, you were harvesting, I think you said every week, uh, rather than just, you know, once or twice or three times a year. Yeah, just to give you an idea, we had 22 parcels at 7,000 square meters, but I think it's about 30 acres. So in those 30 acres, we divided it according to micro ecosystems. I mean, we didn't call it that, of course, because we didn't know that that there was such a thing. We didn't have the, the lexicon, but we could see that certain things would grow in certain places and others would grow in other places. The one thing we observed is that some of the native species were marketable, highly marketable and very priced in the market. And so... You know, Chico Zapotes, you know, Calocarpum Zapota, for example, that's a world-known fruit. 
it was naturally growing. We had trees of over a meter in diameter, which everybody else was cutting. And all you had to do was look up and observe the incredible amount of fruit on a biomass in weight perspective, for example, the canopy of that tree would produce in excess of probably 10 times the amount of other things that you could you could grow in that space if you cut that tree. But the other thing is that tree was already producing and it was probably a hundred years old. Meanwhile, if you cut it, it will be a year before you started seeing new saplings and five to six years before you even saw anything. So the net, the net economic value of working with that tree was so massive. I mean, massive at a level that no economist right today that looks at agricultural crops and that, that even has an idea. This is how massive it was. Now, we could see it because we started to develop an indigenous intellect, which is removed from you as you go through the so-called formal education, because we are trained on colonizing system of linear ways. And so you lose that circularity, that circular economic ways of thinking. And, and that is really what we came in touch with, is that it's just mind-blowing potential for feeding the world over in so much smaller blueprint on the land than what we are doing today in the name of supposedly feeding the world. Now, Reggie, your book is called In the Shadow of the Green Man. I'm just wondering, who is the green man? <laughs> All right, so think of yourself as, a, in that case, I, we moved to the northern rainforest when I was four. Uh, give it a couple more years and the, the war is really starting to rage and the army is everywhere and you are six years old. By the time you are seven years old, as you know, from a neurological perspective, your brain is is really gotten to that space where it built all of its trunks and it's connecting and trimming and all of that. Well, you in those conditions, you got to figure a way to cope. Because uh, there nobody can talk to you about things. Uh, you want to know stuff, but knowledge is seen as subversive. A professor, our director of our elementary school, was you know literally you know kind of engulfed by the local military base because they needed to control everything he did. Uh, the teachers were monitored as to what they were teaching. Questioning was like forbidden. Uh, asking questions was seen like, okay, what, 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 why is he asking those questions? And it didn't matter if you were a kid. And so Green Man became this imaginary friend that I, I, I built out in my imagination since I was a kid. And it just happens that Green Man knew so many things. He had these superpowers. Uh, Green Man could see through like that, like an eagle, you know, they could see a grasshopper drop, jump in the, in the bottom of the forest through a little opening in the canopy while they flew up 30 miles an hour and they could see that hopper because of that, a, you know, fine tuned skill. They could hear everything. They could uh, smell everything. Uh, green men could do all of those things like, like we knew about the most skilled animals in the forest. In the night, it could see everything as well you know, putting its hands on the ground, it could sense the feelings of everything around. It wasn't until lately in the last few years that scientists started to talk about the microsphere and the internet of the earth, which is the mycorrhizal networks of the earth. Well, 
we I was telling stories to my kids, you know, 25 years ago about how green men communicated across continents by by the mycorrhizal systems on the earth. That's just native intelligence for you right there. And it is indigenous intellect and it's just as accurate as any scientific paper that has been produced at any university. And so that's what green men did. Green men answered every question because green men knew everything. And you know what? This is where we actually have to reflect to the fact that when we talk about finding solutions to the global crises that we are facing, okay, stop for a second. Because every single person on earth, if they embrace their indigenousness, they have a green man who knows everything already. All the answers are already written right there in you. Fantastic. Really interesting. And, and as I say, it's exciting to hear about this sort of, you know, revolutionary way of, of moving away from extraction and towards regeneration. But let's start getting practical about this now. Um, <laughs> you've talked about the need in the past for, for a paradigm shift. And I mean, I've called it a revolution so far in this podcast. But global food systems have grown up, particularly over the last few decades, to mass produce food in order that, at least in theory, hunger becomes a thing of the past. And so a global transition to regenerative farming, it's a huge disruption to the status quo. And, and before we start, we just need to be clear. Are you certain in your view that regen can feed the world? Well, number one, yes. And we have numbers to prove it. Number two, I'll question you in terms of what was not practical about what I just described. Because, yeah, to get practical, actually, you have to stop looking at the world the way we see it right now, because that's not practical. It is not practical to destroy the ecosystems of the earth and expect them to produce for us. That is what's not practical. It is not practical to take 40% of the amazing geological formations and, and ancestral soils in the Midwest, plow them under and put corn and soybeans. That's what's impractical. As far as mass producing production, well, no, the, the actual current systems are not mass producing anything. They actually have undercut the ability of ecosystems to mass produce. For example, at a oak, when it masts, it actually mass produces. Mass produces because that's a survival instinct of every species. And so we squandered the mass production ability of ecosystems when we started removing the diversity, which actually is what in, engages that mass production. We did all of this not because we wanted to feed the world. That is the lie that we were told across the world. But that lie was told for the purpose of perpetrating one of the worst crimes on Earth, which is the expropriation of the production systems that ensure the food security of communities on which they depend and to appropriate all of that knowledge and all of the biodiversity on Earth, patented and registered it and manipulated for a single purpose, for the purpose of profit and extraction. We did not achieve mass production. We achieved mass mechanization. And mechanization, yes, because mechanization is the precursor to extraction, not to production. And then as we mechanize and optimize extraction, then we optimize the enriching of a few at the expense of the rest. That's what we have achieved. Don't call it agriculture. Don't call it feeding the world. Don't call it food systems. 
That's not what they are. It seems to me that what you're saying is that we need a regenerative approach to food production and to food supply chains, not only for the world to become genuinely food secure, but for inequalities to be healed and for peace to be maintained in a future disrupted by global warming. Well, yes. I mean, just think for a second, what causes poverty, hunger and conflict? And look at the sources of that. And the way we have actually manufactured the infrastructure and the systems that generate such conditions, those are not natural conditions. We have manufactured them. And we have manufactured them with, you know, by the way, I always said when some, you know, uh, talking heads accuse farmers of, you know, destroying the, the, the land and stuff. I said, well, listen, my dad doesn't know how to write and read. He never learned that. And yet he's the one who taught me the most about this way of thinking and about being way more efficient about everything we do in agriculture. And I, yes, I have an agronomy degree and, and I have a business development degree and all of that. And that's good and dandy, but all that knowledge is worth a zero without all of the wisdom that I inherited from that. Now, when we look at what cost, what is causing and will continue to exacerbate the conflict, war, and, uh, and the conditions that are generating the climate change, all of that is manufactured. We imagined things, we went and did them from building roads and paving the land to tiling the soil in the Midwest and around the world to destroying the rainforest to put palm oil. All of that was engineered and deployed and not by people like my dad. It was all done, including the 83,000 plus chemicals in the atmosphere and in the soil and in the shops around the world were developed and engineered by people, most of them with PhDs behind their names. They are the community that validated what is destroying the planet and our ability to feed ourselves and to live in peace. Now, to change that, they need to change first. Either that or the rest of us have to take over the system and ignore that kind of approach because if we don't do that they will wreck the planet this is a global conversation we have to have it's a reckoning and we're back to revolution it's, it's you know these these people who have land who can manage land who farm who have the means of food production to to be able to change the system from the bottom up now Reki, your particular interest your expertise is in poultry and so let's take that as our practical example of of what regenerative systems look like at a global level right so if you think of it we consume i did these numbers for a 10 billion people planet. Now, our production units are designed on a one and a half acre uh, blueprint. Now, what we did in that one and a half acre was calculate the roaming space, sprouting systems, conditions, water needs, and all of that within one principle uh, criteria to return poultry to its natural geoevolutionary habitat. Now, if you, if you look at it from an indigenous eyes, then instead of thinking, okay, what do I need in order to raise chickens? You flip it and you think, where would chickens thrive the most? And then, yes, from that starting point, you start tweaking things so that we can accommodate mechanization to a certain degree of the things that can be mechanized. Like, for example, feeding the chicken. Um, watering. Well, we got piping systems and they don't interfere with the ecosystem as long as we don't leave those pipes laying around and, you know, mixing with the soil. Th those things are mechanizable. Uh, the building, of course, the chicken is going to need a shelter at night. 
So we perfected a building system that protects the chicken from almost every predator, except the weasels are the only ones that we're still having a little bit of trouble. Now, within that engineering process, um, what you do is you develop not a blueprint for like you do with a house, but rather a blueprint of a process by which you adapt the creation, the building of that natural environment that where the chicken can thrive. And then you apply that process to any ecology in the world where there are certain basic conditions are met. One, there is enough water to sprout grain. It doesn't have to be rain, but it, there has to be some. Two, that there is a forest species, at least one story. So if it's a high dry desert like San Miguel de Allende in Mexico, where we have one of these demonstration systems, well, then it may be 10 feet tall, but it's still got a canopy because without the canopy, the chicken is not going to do well. But also because those canopies are can be adapted to be highly productive and with the chicken, they become even more productive. So in the Midwest, for example, we're using hazelnuts and elderberries in the U.S. as the foundation of that understory. And then for the overstory, we'll pick, take you pick based on the local uh, native species and pick from those native species the one that can have the most value. So in northern Guatemala, we should pick zapotes and chico zapotes and ramon trees and all of that. Now in the Midwest, we got oaks and basswood and um, sugar maple. But with that blueprint then, and based on a one and a half acre, which uh, I'm not going to go further into it because there's a lot to it, each unit can deliver us uh, around 4,500 broilers a year at one and a half acres. And at eight acres, we can produce over 1.02 million eggs per production unit with 4,000 egg layers divided into two production units. So that's the foundational blueprint. Now to, to feed the world with chickens under a system like this, um, so for broilers, we barely need 33.3 million acres we can regenerate 33 million acres on top of producing all of the broilers that we need for the world at 10 billion people. And we need barely 12 million acres to feed all of the eggs to everyone in the world at 150 eggs a year per person and 10 broilers a year per person. In the U.S., the average is 20 broilers per person and 250 eggs per person. Well, if you average across the world at about half of those many chickens, so 10 and 150 eggs, we barely need 44, 45 rounded up million acres to feed the whole world without ever confining an animal, exploiting a person, exploiting a farmer, and on top of it, redesigning the economy of over 500 million farmers. That, you so know, tell me about the economy, because that's the bit that I wanted to come to next, which is, you know, this isn't about big companies or big corporations that are running these uh, these smaller farms and making huge profits out of that. It's an economy that's run by smaller farmers, by a multitude of, of smaller farmers, a, a revitalized rural economy. Of course, and you know, the the other thing is that to understand circular economics, the ancestral indigenous organizing structures and systems of management are already time tested for tens of thousands of years. And so in those systems, it's not about romanticizing the small farm or any of that. It's just that beyond a certain point, your returns start to diminish if you go the mechanical way. There is a point here where our energy as laborers in a farm is critical and machines should never do certain things. Like a machine can't get under a bush of hazelnuts and actually 
differentiate, or maybe somebody will invite a machine, invent a machine that can differentiate a dead branch or a branch that is too low or a branch that is not producing hazelnuts and then remove that. So those, those are things that we need people. And it's important that we do that because when we don't do that, we, we grow into this different mentality that turns us into monsters of the earth, right? So as you think of that, the uh, governance, the ownership and the control is central that we reflect on what we have done to that in the food system because we gave it away. We gave it away to a few corporations who don't really care about our health, our community wealth, and our ability to thrive and to be resilient in the face of climate calamities, pandemics, and all of that. What we are talking about is mass scale systems of small farms. And so that, that changes the whole paradigm. And the beauty of that is that the wealth creation capacity of communities is much larger than a corporation. Now, don't extract, communities don't extract as much and they don't make an individual as rich as extractive systems, but the wealth overall is much larger. And that is the foundation to peace, stability and food security. Thank you for that. Putting some bones into what we're talking about, where we can see how uh, the poultry industry would be reformed, how that would change, how the economics shift. But when we talk about a paradigm shift like this, I wonder who's responsible for it. Somebody's got to create that shift. Is it the farmers? Is it customers? How is it that ordinary people can contribute to this exciting paradigm shift that we're talking about here? Right. So we entered this larger food and agriculture ecosystem from the perspective of the chicken because of that very question. What I wanted to answer way back when I was in, you know, I, I got a methodical process of doing this, right? So there is four phases to everything we do here. And there are five areas of management that, that we systemically apply. So in those four phases of development, the first one is discovery, right? So we do this, this perpetual improvement cycle that goes through development and uh, discovery, development, discovery of information and facts and figures and you know, trends and opportunities, supply chain bottlenecks, all of those things. Development of both capacity of people to do things and also development of the planning and strategies. And so the third stage is launch. That's the, after all those two phases are more or less, you know, we feel comfortable as entrepreneurs. Um, then we move to the launch of something. And then after that, we move to the growth phase and we'll go back to discovery again. And, and that's never ending cycle, right? So within that process, when we started trying to figure out, all right, well, there is this mass, you know, in the U.S. alone is, I believe it's over five, five point something trillion dollar industry, food and beverages and agriculture, right? You can't just enter that space and pretend to do a paradigm shift by going at it all over the place. You got to pick an entry point. And that entry point has to have two basic characteristics that you spend the least amount of time convincing or defending. That way, free, it frees up 90% of the time to actually doing it. And when you put that equation together effectively, then the system feeds itself and sells itself, and the paradigm shift actually happens on its own momentum. That is the secret to paradigm shift, is to not push things into people, down their throats, but rather demonstrate that something is fundamentally, magnificently better than the alternative that we are stuck with, and then use compassion 
and use all of these incredible human attributes we were born with and become indigenous again. And when you become indigenous, then the empathy, the oxytocin that is generated in you right now, speaking about this issue with the sense of hope and possibilities, that opens up a marvelous cocktail of chemicals in your brain that makes you feel hopeful and makes you feel like you want to do this. And that is the foundation of paradigm shift, because then we would start thinking differently because we have uncovered the other 95% of possibilities that we shut down when we focus on colonizing. That is the the business of paradigm shift is 90% psychological. Central to what we're talking about here is a shifting of power. It's a, a redistribution of wealth from the hands of a few big corporations to many small and medium-sized farm businesses and to other actors within those supply chains and, and smaller retailers. But let me interrupt you. Let me interrupt you there because I am not proposing that we redistribute the wealth from corporations. All I am saying is that they had their share and that we need to stop feeding them. That's all I'm saying. And what I'm asking really is, is there a role? Do corporations exist in a regenerative future? Or has the power moved so much that the future is about smaller, medium-sized farmers, smaller supply chains? Is there still a role for the big corporations that exist now in this transition? Of course. Think of it in two ways. A corporation is simply the reflection of CEOs and executive teams. A corporation isn't a bad thing. A corporation is simply a legal structure by which we implement our human desires. So the corporation itself isn't the problem. It's to what end do we use that? To to extract wealth and then to put it away in some offshore account so we don't have to pay our fair share of building the environment that generates a profit in the first place? Okay, that is not, that should be illegal. Why? Because it's illegitimate. It's, it's actually unethical at a foundational level. Now, when we use corporate structures for that purpose, then yes, that corporation becomes a problem, but it isn't the corporate structure, it's the people who are making those decisions. And fortunately for us in the world today, the amount of people in the world that have that kind of power and that are actually not going to change no matter what we do, it's so tiny that as we think of how to reform corporate America and inject a new generation of thinkers and innovators that actually care for the earth and for each other and for our communities and for our food security, then we can start thinking about how those corporate structures become incredibly pivotal to the transformation from degenerative ways to regenerative indigenous ways. A clear example of some of that, you know, a little sign of that is Exxon. Uh, right now, you got that global phenomenon is in the news everywhere. Now, it may not be the way those corporations actually get transformed. We don't know that yet, but that is one very critical example on strategies that could potentially help us, you know, repurpose a lot of this infrastructure that is already in place. I mean, honestly, our chickens, they still need processing facilities. They they still need managers in those processing facilities. But the first processing facility that we bought here in the central United States 
that processing facility is being turned into a worker managed and operated place. Why? Well, because then we avoid the exploitation of workers and the extraction of their value for the purpose of, of feeding uh, an individual bank account somewhere. And so that that creates wealth, delivers uh, good quality chicken, supports the farmers, supports the health of consumers and all of that. Nobody loses out of that. The majority of us, we just want to have food security and hope. As I said in my book, that's all I need personally, food security and hope. And that's enough for me to have an honorable life. And there is a lot of us that way. Right at the top of the podcast, you were talking about the way in which, you know, regenerative agriculture is about being indigenous with the earth. It's about ancestral knowledge and and, and using that kind of inherited ancestral knowledge. And it's not about practices. But at the same time, many farmers, particularly in rich nations around the world, have become very used to a prescriptive approach to food production where agriculture has sought to conquer nature, to farm despite nature rather than imbalance with it. And even for those who want to make the transition to Regen, it's sometimes hard for them to know where to start. And I wonder if you think it is actually possible to codify regenerative principles with the practices so that we can help more farmers to find their way, their own way to becoming indigenous with the earth. Absolutely. We have actually codified the approach with regenerative poultry. And fortunately for us, the loss of thermodynamics and the biophysical chemical processes that are responsible for the transformation of energy from non-edible into edible forms is universal. So yes, it can be completely codified, but on the matter of principles at a global level. On um, If you think of from the what we call the PCIVs framework, so principles, criteria, indicators, and verifiers. So principles uh, say ownership, control, and governance of a regenerative system is not a matter of individual, but collective function. That's a central principle of regenerative. Now, notice I didn't start by saying soil health. Why? Because soil health is going to happen if we do this right. You don't have to codify that. Second principle, design and engineer from the perspective of the natural design. So you can't have regenerative cattle in a rainforest ecosystem. Well, unless cattle were part of that ecosystem to begin with. So if, you, if we're going to regenerate, let's codify what regenerates. And it is ecosystems that have to regenerate. And if you regenerate ecosystem functions, then the water regenerates, the soil regenerates, soil health is restored, photosynthetic mass capacity is restored, biological activities are restored, uh, wildlife is restored, and you still harvest, in this case, the chicken. So those are principles that are very easy to codify. Now, as far as criteria, that's another layer where, you know, if you got, say, the Forest Stewardship Council has 10 principles, I believe they still have 10, and yet they have 75 criteria. So it's exponentially a larger set of criteria. Why is that critical? Because every ecosystem blueprint on Earth has to have its own criteria. You can't develop criteria for the global application of regenerative because it's not about soil health. That's the foundational mistake. And then um, the next level is indicators. So what are the indicators? Those um, um, could be much more reduced in number because those are very specific things that say, yes, this is happening. So you test the water down, in our case here, down the Keith Creek, which is the watershed I'm part of. Now, 
if all of this is being done regeneratively, then the Cannon River water quality will improve continuously over the coming years. That's an indicator that we are doing the right thing in this area. Organic matter is going to increase. That's another indicator. It's not about carbon sequestration and, and carbon marketing. It's simply an indicator that your ecosystem is more productive if the organic matter goes up. Photosynthetic area. The more photosynthetic area you have in an area and the more perennial that photosynthetic surface is, the more energy you are capturing and the more efficient your system is and the more transformation of energy is happening. Keeping in mind that there is three places where energy is transformed from non-edible into edible forms. Photosynthetic, the intestinal tract of animals and the chewing mechanisms, and the soil. All of them, except for the photosynthetic, are completely biologically, physically, and chemically based. Photosynthetic is the only one that is mostly physical and less biological. So with that perspective, you now got the pivoting points from which we can pivot principles, criteria, indicators, and then the last thing is the verifiers. That's the actual data that verifies that yes, those indicators are real, that yes, those indicators align with those principles that we set for that specific ecological blueprint. And yes, that ecological blueprint aligns with the global principles of regenerative. Right there, you've got the framework for global climate change solutions and for redesigning every sector of the agricultural sector. And it's exactly the blueprint we use for poultry. Ricky, that's just, it's been a fantastic insight. Uh, that's all we've got time for. I mean, what what a force of nature you are. It's just been wonderful, wonderful. I'd like to thank my guest, Reginaldo Haslit Marroquin from the Regenerative Agriculture Alliance, which you can find on Twitter under the handle at Regen Ag Alliance. Reggie's book, In the Shadow of the Green Man, is available from online bookshops. Acres you say if you're in Europe and Africa they ship uh, out in that direction it's called Acres USA and if you want our chicken uh, go to bluenest.com in the United States and you can at least uh, get a taste of this awesome wonderful magnificent bird if you've enjoyed listening please come back and listen to more tell your friends like us review us and share our links Farmgate is a partnership project for Farmwell and FAI Farms we're funded by Sankalpa and you can join the conversation on Twitter by searching for Farmgate Podcast I've been Finlow Castain bye for now